This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Reassessing Paternalism is Autonomy a Myth and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. The session was recorded by Worldright. Welcome to this session, Reassessing Paternalism is Autonomy a Myth. I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. This is a hugely important topic, it seems to me. It's both a philosophical topic but very pertinent to the way we live our lives today and um, I was very keen that we get a panel of people together to consider it. The notion of us that's emerged historically in the modern period that we should be uh, self-determining, in control of our uh, lives, uh, being able to make our own choices, being free to uh, decide how we uh, live... Those kind of questions were a major step forward from the sense in the past of being done to or dependent or determined. And so this notion of autonomy is one which I think is very precious to all of us. But it's also the case that we live in a society, we are social beings, and we often uh, don't just live as isolated individuals. And therefore we look to each other for advice and so on. Um, and we interact with each other uh, to work out how we might uh, live a better life. These days we'll all know that the notion that we ourselves will choose and only ourselves will choose how we live our life is increasingly unfashionable, and that we actually ourselves now turn to advisors and experts, and if you go into any of the bookshops, you'll see endless self-help books, There's quite an acceptance of third-party expert intervention advising us on how we should achieve happiness, how we can be better parents, how we should, uh, what kind of food we should eat. And uh, an area like public health in particular has uh, uh, given lots of examples where that notion of autonomy is no longer secure. What I wanted us to talk about today was what's happened to this notion of autonomy If paternalism, as is often used as an insult, is increasingly actually practically the way we live our lives and our autonomy is being challenged, what does that mean for us? So, fantastic panel, not enough time for them to deal with all this. I'm keeping them to a five and six minute ridiculous uh, uh, tight uh, timing and we'll go straight out to the audience afterwards. But I'm really delighted that we have the following people. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, First of all, we've got Tim Black, who's the books and essays editor of uh, Spiked, who are our media partners and long-term collaborators. Uh, Tim is one of the sharpest and most thoughtful commentators I know, and his, particularly his uh, uh, Spiked review of books is brilliant. Uh, We're delighted to have him here. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? (laughs) 
We have uh, Dr. Caterina uh, Deligiori. Uh, I've already warned them I can't. It, it, hopeless. Can't pronounce anything. Caterina is a reader in philosophy at the University of Sussex. She's the author of The Scope of Autonomy and currently working on a project on the metaphysics, psychology and pathologies of freedom, freedom for rational animals. So absolutely in the academic space of this debate. She's never spoken at the battle before. We're delighted to have her. Give her a warm welcome. Next up, we'll be hearing from Dr. Uh, Daniel Glazer, uh, who's Director of the Science Gallery at King's College London, a neuroscientist uh, with many years' experience promoting public engagement in science, and in that capacity, I've known him in a variety of guises. Uh, he was head of the Engaging, uh, Engaging Science at the Wellcome Trust, who are obviously one of our partners here at the Battle of Ideas. Uh, he was a scientist in residence at the ICA, and lots more besides. So he's something of a Renaissance man. Um, I always think that Dan makes me think. He's spoken at the battle before. I'm glad to have him back. Warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, then we have uh, Dr. Mike Kelly, who's Senior Visiting Fellow in Behaviour and Health Research Unit at the Institute of Public Health at the University of Cambridge, who uh, researches all aspects of uh, uh, nudge and choice architecture and actually was previously on the front line of being involved in this kind of area when he was director the Centre for Public Health at NICE, and he wrote the guidelines uh, for things like the misuse of alcohol, tobacco, obesity, and so on. In other words, he's the absolute enemy, devil incarnate. <laughs> Every guideline he's written, I've broken. Uh, but the point is, is that he wrote them, so he knows what he's talking about. He, he came to the Battle of Ideas before and spoke on alcohol, and uh, everybody said he was a brilliant speaker, and even if you didn't agree with him, he made you think. That's why he's back. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? <laughs> Finally, we'll hear from Georgios... Uh, I just lost confidence. Anyway, he's Professor of History and Political Thought at Queen Mary University of London. He's a J.S. Miller Scholar, and he's actually going to be speaking on uh, uh, Mill tomorrow in the Academy in One Day. And he's the author of Liberty Abroad, uh, J.S. Mill on International Relations. Uh, he's a brilliant speaker. I've no idea what he's going to say on this. I just thought he'd be interesting. So give him a warm welcome, please. Right, let battle commence. Tim. I don't think autonomy is a myth. I don't think the idea of individuals being free uh, to determine their own paths in life according to their own judgment and reason is illusory. Uh, I actually think it's an ideal. I think it's something to aspire towards. Um, but I don't think autonomy is a thing either. I don't think it's a given. I don't think, I don't think it's a fact out there to be refuted. I think you're best off thinking of autonomy as an accomplishment, a social, historical and individual achievement. It has been contested as an idea and fought for and little by little won from those in whom authority has been invested, be it king, church or an unrepresentative parliament. So when Immanuel Kant in the late 18th century um, is formulating his idea of moral autonomy, an individual using his own reason to decide what one ought to do, Kant is doing so on the back of the Reformation, the scientific enlightenment and political struggles for liberty uh, from the English Civil War to the American Revolution. That is to say, Kant's sublime vision of moral autonomy is underpinned by people's struggle to emancipate themselves from the authority of external bodies. Man's self-incurred tutelage, as Kant put it, be it monarchy or the church, and to live according to the authority of their own reason. 
So the ideas of autonomy and its near synonym liberty, I think, are to be grasped as accomplishments, uh, as the products of intellectual and actual contestation, indeed as lived realities. But the contest over autonomy continues, I think, and it's doing so today without anyone really defending autonomy. Quite the opposite, in fact, and I think that is a massive problem. Autonomy and liberty, those great gains of hundreds of years of struggle, can just as easily be undone. They can be unaccomplished. And that's what we appear to be in the grip of right now, an undoing, if you like, of the principle of autonomy. Thanks in part to the response to the dark episodes of the, of the 20th century, there now reigns a profound suspicion of human beings' ability to legislate for themselves, to make rational decisions for themselves. We're too weak, we're too driven by impulse, by biology, by neurology, by, and assorted other species of determinism. So we are not to be trusted. That seems to be the kind of message today. The prevalent narratives today see autonomy as the source of problems, not a solution. We're told that our consumption choices are destroying the planet, that our decisions about what to eat are creating an obesity crisis, that our smoking or our alcohol consumption is ruining the lives, ruining our lives and ruining the lives of others. And so deep is this distrust of our ability to legislate for ourselves, to pursue our lives as we see fit, because we can and will do the wrong thing, that paternalism is flourishing. And it does so because it appears as an answer. It appears as a solution to the problem, which is us and our faulty decision-making apparatus. But the version that's flourishing is not the hard, sort of uh, uh, prohibitionist version of paternalism of old, although that's getting a boost too. No, it's the kind of softer, therapeutic version that wants to nudge us into making the right choices, uh, a version that understands our weaknesses, a version that's just there to help, uh, to look after us, and I think this is probably the key phrase, to protect us from ourselves. I think this is most clear uh, from the influence of behavioural uh, psychology and behavioural economics on policymaking or so-called nudge theory. Uh, there's little talk of banning things among nudges. Instead, it's all about encouraging uh, us to make certain decisions, the decisions that will be supposedly in our, in our best interests, say by making uh, smaller cups of Fanta the default option on a fast food menu or by automatically enrolling young employees on a pension scheme uh, so it becomes an uh, opt-out option rather than an opt-in option. Now, in themselves, these, aren't, these don't feel like massive issues. You know, the, the size of uh, uh, soft drinks doesn't seem like a particularly exciting political issue. But it's the idea on which uh, nudge theory has justified itself and curried favour among the political set, which I think is most worrying. It assumes, in short, that humans are frequently and predictably irrational, that ultimately we are incapable of acting in our own best interests. And because of that, we need to be nudged and guided in the right direction by those who know best. Uh, you know, policymakers, academics, and you know, anybody else who sort of passes under the rubric of expert. And there are obvious problems here. You know, who can really decide what is in our best interest? Who can really decide what, you know, what is a rational and a, and a rational decision? Who is in the best position to make that decision as to what is rational and irrational? Uh, and of course, if we really are such flawed creatures, if our reasoning, our judgment is so suspect, then surely that must affect the experts too. Why are they exempt from the charges they level against the rest of humanity? But I think what's most striking about nudge theory is its banality. There are no real insights, even in the behavioural insight team. Observing that we don't always make great choices, that people might sometimes behave a little bit oddly or act on habit, it's not an insight, it's stating the bleeding obvious. That such statements are the bleeding obvious 
uh, have gained such a political and cultural currency is testament, I think, not to their merit, uh, not to their kind of uh, theoretical sort of apicure, um, but to the extent to which they confirm contemporary prejudices against humanity, uh, a contemporary elite prejudices often against citizens. What Nudge and its variants are not is a refutation of autonomy. Because, as I said, autonomy is not a given. It's not a fact there to be refuted. It's something that people develop through exercising it. Kant recognised this. You know, individual autonomy is something to be cultivated, to be brought into being. People will fall a few times, he said, but they will gradually learn to walk alone. In other words, evidence of what appear to be people's folly, are not rev- that's, not, uh, that's not evidence, uh, that's not proof that autonomy is false. It's proof that people are being allowed to live freely, uh, that we live in a society mature enough to tolerate lives and beliefs uh, that we can perhaps otherwise judge negatively. So despite the fog of determinism and nudging, I think the best way to show that autonomy is not a myth is through exercising it, thinking for oneself rather than following prevailing opinion, uh, choosing rather than being chosen for, and refusing to be patronised and condescended to by experts who want to treat us like children. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tim. That's a brilliant setting up of the uh, argument against, as it were, um, and or argument for autonomy. Um, and so let's try and tease it out now through our other speakers. So, Katerina. Okay. I want to speak uh, for autonomy as well. I want to defend autonomy. But what do I want to defend? Because there are lots of fantastical notions of autonomy around, which, of, of which paternalistic impulses feed. Uh, autonomy is a capacity we all have. And like other capacities we have, we become better at it by exercising. It needs exercise. We become more autonomous the more we are able to think of ourselves, the more we reason better, the more in control we are of our choices and our decisions. But we are irrational very often. We are biased. We are subject to groupthink. Uh, Sometimes, I hate to say, we don't reason at all. So why bother? Well, because autonomy is also a value, and it's a value of treating oneself and others as persons. Therefore, I will be arguing against policies and behaviours that do not recognise the value of autonomy and therefore curtail our opportunities to exercise the capacity through which we become more autonomous, better at being autonomous. Paternalism is such an interesting case because it seeks to suspend individual autonomy for the sake of furthering some other value, the value of welfare. Now, there is no accepted uh, definition of paternalism in the literature, but I think essential elements of paternalism ought to include interference uh, into someone's affairs without their permission and often against their will for the sake of furthering their good or welfare. I'm using good and welfare here interchangeably. So the notion of interference requires considerable executive authority, whether it is the state uh, whose interference is backed up by coercive legislation and penalties, or whether it's just your friend who has access to your cigarettes and hides them because uh, she's worried for your own health. So at both interpersonal and state or institutional level, you need some executive authority. And it has to be about an end, directed towards an end. The nudge... uh, case of paternalism, of this new so-called soft paternalism or libertarian paternalism, I do not consider necessarily a threat to autonomy because it's about means for ends. 
And I may well share these ends and may want the help or I may not want it. Uh, if there is time afterwards, I will clarify uh, the position further. But it suffices to say that there is no recipe for what is autonomy enhancing because rational persuasion can be just as autonomy undermining, just as nudge can be. So uh, let me now go back briefly to autonomy to flesh it a little bit out. Uh, first of all, it is important to notice that autonomy is contextually different. So there is one thing to say moral autonomy, you say something else from what you, say, what you mean when you say political autonomy, when, what you mean to say individual autonomy or personal autonomy or patient autonomy or autonomy for students. And it's important to, be, uh, to attend to these differences in context because they come with different demands uh, addressed to oneself and to others. What they all share in common, however, is the recognition uh, of what I said at the outset, that we have a capacity to think for ourselves and to be uh, involved and in control of our lives. Uh, we have the capacity to do stuff. We, we want to be involved in our lives, not in, to be tricked into living them. And we want to be in control of what we do. Okay, but how about the everyday rationalities of which, from which we all suffer? Uh, or more serious cases, uh, cases of depression or cases of uh, when you are fragile or helpless. Well, defending autonomy is not being against asking for help and giving help. It's not being against asking for advice and giving advice. This is, goes with the fantastical notion of autonomy that sometimes is promulgated because people don't spend enough time to think about it. Similarly, with a similar fantastical notions as involve freedom of speech or enlightenment thing for yourself uh, as if you create everything, all content for, for yourself. Of course, we are social beings, as Claire said at the outset, and we need and ask help. But what matters is how you ask for help and how you give the help. Uh, so, what matters in the end uh, is how we treat others and in treating others that we recognize the value of autonomy that I discussed at the outset. So, uh, if, there is, and we can, if there is one takeaway message from my brief presentation is that autonomy in the final analysis is not how I stand with respect with my desires, my aims, and my plans, but how we treat each other. Autonomy is an interpersonal uh, value, not just a value about, that has to do about myself and my, uh, and my aims in life. So, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's a very helpful build-on and, you know, some argument there, but subtly. Dan. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, right, hello, everyone. Um, thanks for choosing to come uh, to this session today. I'm going to say a couple of things as, as a neuroscientist um, and then a bit as the director of a, of a space where art and science collide, which is supposed to be about empowerment and uh, young people driving the agenda, because I think what I want to end up with is the thought that the real choice you, you exercise in your life is in determining the inputs that come to you rather than making the decisions that apparently face you. But I'll come back to that point at the end. On the neuroscience, I guess what I would say as a neuroscientist is that there's plenty of evidence and it's well rehearsed that when we think we're choosing, we're often not. Okay? And I can uh, demonstrate that in a number of ways based on the timing of choice, when you think you've chosen something versus when I can tell that you've chosen it from inside your head. Uh, and um, the fact that we are extraordinary confabulators. So some very nice studies where you have to make a series of A-B choices in an uh, experimental context, and I can 
subliminally cue you towards one or the other by subtly changing the illumination of the two buttons or uh, making some sort of sound. key point here is that you're not aware that I'm getting you to choose A, A, B, B, A, B, A. Afterwards, I can take you through your choices and ask you why you did them, and you will always come up with a completely convincing account of why you chose that option, and then that option, and then that option, and then that option, because you'd seen the pattern that was this, or because you wanted to say that. So the stories we tell about ourselves as free agents are stories just that. They are accounts that we give of our own mental functioning, and as a neuroscientist, the first point I want to to give you is that introspection is an extremely unreliable guide to what's going on inside your head. That doesn't mean that neuroscientists know what's going on inside your head. It's not that we have the answers. I always tell this joke, don't I, in this context, Claire, but behaviorists are the people who believe there's nothing on inside the head. The behaviorist joke, two behaviorists in bed, and one says to the other, that was great for you, how was it for me? So it, 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 that, that's a joke, right? So it's not the case that we can tell what's going on inside your head. But what I can tell you is that the story you're telling me about what's going on your, inside your head is probably not the truth, okay? So how can we choose to change what we do? In my view, focusing on uh, autonomous decisions, those critical moments where you choose this or choose that, is largely futile. That's not going to help. For me, it's like choosing to play the violin, Right? That you can, you can assert your right to choose to play the violin, and you can really, really want to play the violin, but that is not what's going to get you to grade three. Right? To get you to grade three is pretty simple. You need a violin, uh, you need some exercises, and perhaps you need a teacher, and then you just need to do the fucking thing for half an hour a day for uh, three, and you'll get there. Is that a choice? Is that autonomy? Maybe, because what you're doing is you're putting yourself in an environment which moves you towards a goal that you're interested in. So the choice to shape your own environment, we know from neuroscience, is something which you can do, and that's what gets you where you need to be. Now, as a neuroscientist, the second point I want to make is about the evidence of experts. Right? So I've got a column in the Observer magazine now uh, called A Neuroscientist Explains, and every week I take an event from the cultural zeitgeist and explain it with neuroscience in 200 words. Of course I don't. Right? It's not, a, it's not a, um, a biological account of Corbin mania or indeed the St. Alden sinkhole was my piece last week. Uh, what it is is a series of neuroscientific tidbits. It's to show that uh, science can be shallow too, but to bring scientific argument into a context not precisely when you have to make an important decision, but rather to get you the sense that becoming acquainted with the commonplaces of science, thinking about things in a scientific way, is the sort of background chatter that you want going on in your life so that when you come to make decisions, your decisions are informed by something other than fashion, by solely literature, or by the chatter of those around you. So it feels to me that the time to equip yourself with knowledge is not when you're supposed to stand up and make a decision, but rather it should be the diet from which you feed in the general case. When I had children, I thought that my neuroscientific colleagues would help me out with parenting. And it turns out they could tell me nothing about how to raise my children. And indeed, when I look at education today, as a parent of children in school, there's nothing that I believe has been discovered in neuroscience in the last 10 or even 20 years that should change the way my children are educated. Right? What we do need to do is to try and make uh, the way that science is conducted more responsive to societal needs. So there's an onus on scientists to, to look at topics that are of general interest and an onus on scientists to make what they say more available and understandable. But it's not that when the decision comes to be made as an individual, you need to page the scientist. NHS choices is probably what you need uh, at the moment of a choice that you need to make, but you can read some neuroscience in the background.
Let me say one final thing about uh, uh, what is now called personal digital curation. And I've been online more or less continuously since about 1991, so I have kind of observed some trends in it. And one is that over time, I think the range of websites that I visit is getting narrower and narrower. And I don't know whether others of you noticed the same thing, but for me, for example, on Twitter, I'm becoming increasingly concerned at my own ability to siphon out uh, from the vast range of voices on Twitter, those that I feel comfortable with and that agree with me. And I also think that increasingly as we read our news on websites which can choose what comes up on, at the top of our feed, you know, the distinction between Facebook and a digital newspaper is, is reducing, the advertisers will feed us things that are in concert with our own views. So I do think that the autonomy that I would ask you to consider is to make sure that the voices that you hear are not only those that you agree with. Because if you surround yourself through your Twitter feed and the advertisers through what comes up on your Facebook feed and, and increasingly how you read your newspapers, is only what you think. That is not asserting who you are. It's destroying your ability to choose. You choose by changing and varying the diet from which you feed. And if you're properly nourished by a wide, wide range of perspectives, you'll have the faculties that you need to make the decisions that you do when you do. Just don't think you know what you're doing when you think you're choosing. Okay, great. Um, so plenty to argue with there, but, uh, but loads to think about as well, and really interesting. Thank you so much. Mike. Um. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> I want to take a slightly different perspective, perhaps, uh, on this, and I want to begin in historical perspective and ask the question, why is it that as, the, as states emerged um, in the 10th, 12th, 13th centuries in Europe... Why did they spend so much time trying to bend people to the will of themselves or the will of the powerful? Historically speaking, what we see over millennia, more or less, is that states have attempted to bring the public, uh, bring the people into line with some set of thoughts or actions that were thought to be desirable, sometimes backed up with religious uh, or other kinds of ideologies, but that's been a consistent feature of human life um, at least since um, the 10th millennia. Now, th that in itself, I think, is interesting. The Starting with the Enlightenment, which is uh, what uh, is in the, the abstract of this session, perhaps it's the Enlightenment that's the exception in, in the sense that the sets of ideas which emerged in the Enlightenment, one of which... Uh, was notions of autonomy. Another very closely linked idea was the idea of the separate, separated individual. Uh, and I think it's difficult to talk about autonomy without thinking of the individuated self to which Kant actually originally gave uh, a voice. Of course, in the modern age, modern states, at least in the Western world, don't spend their time torturing you to do what they want to, killing you in large numbers. What they do in instead are the kinds of things that the first speaker talked about. And I made a list here. Uh, sometimes it's persuasion. Uh, sometimes it's advertisement. Sometimes it's called education. Uh, sometimes it's underlying norms and values. Sometimes uh, it's based on a very crude principle, which again was alluded to, I think, initially there, that if we feed people the right kinds of information, that that will lead them to make particular kinds of decisions that will take them in the direction of usually the person giving out that kind of information. 
And as Claire said at the beginning, I earned my living for at least 10 years as the Director of Public Health, looking at all sorts of evidence about things which did harm biologically uh, to individuals and thinking of recommendations and ways on the basis of the evidence where we could get people to think about doing things differently. To such a degree, actually, that the Daily Mail on one occasion uh, labelled me super nanny. Um, Dan asked me earlier on, was it, was it meant as a joke? No, it certainly wasn't. It was a most serious... Um, a most serious negative uh, label, I suppose, that they could think of. But why does the state go to such lengths to do this? Well, one of the reasons is the sheer cussedness of the individual. It keeps having to do these things because, by and large, individuals don't do what the state wants them to do. They don't do what the powerful wants them to do. They don't do what advertisers want them to do. The individual, and in particularly societies like the United Kingdom and the United States, which put, place a high value on individualism, it's actually very difficult to shift populations and shift individuals in particular kinds of direction. It's a conceit, actually, of governments and politicians to believe that if they can, uh, in some regard, persuade you to do something, that you will. <coughs> the world actually doesn't work like that. Humans are self-directed agents whose actions are informed by a multitude of motives, thoughts, biologies, um, social contexts, and so on. Um, and they are not part of some linear programming where you feed something in and out comes a response at the end. That's why Enoch Powell remarked towards the end of his life that all political careers end in failure because that's the nature of the human, the human condition. The politicians can see that they can bring people in line as a consequence of their particular views, ideologies, information, or indeed evidence, turns out to be very thin indeed. In order to make sense of this, it's very helpful, I think, to reflect on where modern psychology has got to and the distinction it makes between the automatic and the reflective system, an idea actually that goes back to Greek mythology and the ideas of Apollo and Dionysus. But briefly, uh, our minds are made, in a sense, of two halves. One is the automatic side of our, uh, our minds, which responds to immediate cues in the environment. It's the thing which, when we were given our uh, lunch bag, that's the speakers in our lunch bag, there was chocolate in there. Um, and I noticed most people, many people ate the chocolate first before the nutritious banana. It's the thing that takes a shortcut, the easy thing where you don't have to think much. The great thing about the automatic system is you don't have to think about what you're doing. We take what are called sometimes heuristics. We find easy answers to complex problems. That's contrasted to the reflective parts of our personality, uh, the reflective parts of our minds, the bit that does the rational evaluation, the bit that reflects upon, as I hope most people in this room at the moment are using the reflective sides of their minds as they listen and appraise the arguments at which are being made. That's where we think in the long term. That's where we think about the costs and benefits of what we're doing. But we are both of those things. We're not one nor the other. In different situations, we use one. In other situations, we use other things. I think it's been best explained um, by someone who did influence the behavioural economists, uh, but is in, in, in many ways, in my mind, much smarter uh, than, say, Thaler or Sunstein or the Insights Unit in the Cabinet Office. And that's Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, in which he distinguishes between the ways in which sometimes our fast thinking gets us to where we need to go quickly, 
and that's often the source as the automatic system of nudges and all that kind of thing. But the slow thinking, where we have to evaluate, where we have to work things out. If I ask for you, for example, to solve this problem, in your heads now, 37,973 divided by 13. Probably a few people in the room that can do that, but most of you will have to sit down and do complex, slow thinking to get to the answer. You can't get a quick and easy heuristic. So, the distinction between free will and determinism, between autonomy and its opposite, I suggest is an interesting philosophical question. But in reality, if you think about the way that we really think, you can find an easier way than getting caught up um, in what are sometimes, I think, rather... um, conceited arguments about the nature of the philosophy involved. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So, uh, obviously, a lot, a lot of uh, challenges there and loads of things uh, to think about, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to the discussion afterwards. But, Georgios, your thoughts now to finish thank off. Thank you. I must be a horrible bore because the only thing I took out of that bag was the banana. But the reflective part of my brain may not be as active tonight when the wine comes. So um, this discussion is very much related um, uh, to uh, some discussions among philosophers and professors of law and so on, academics that um, have been uh, alluded to here already. And um, Carl Sunstein, Wynudge, and his co-author, who is a, an, um, a behavioral economist in an earlier book about Nudge, Sunstein, these people stress what Katerina said, that what they are trying to propose is, um, of course we want people to choose their ends, and nobody should do that for them. We want to help them achieve their ends, so we want to help them in terms of their means, uh, because very often people, research shows time after time, are a bit optimistic about how they will achieve their ends. So their argument is, it is the means that we are trying to influence and give people uh, not just the information. Sunstein is, is explicit that um, some people are sophisticated enough to choose the right thing. The rest are not. The majority are not. And therefore, you somehow manipulate them into choosing the right thing by putting it on top of the menu somehow. You know how they will react automatically. They will choose the first thing. Or inertia will set in and they will not choose a pension scheme because they will not bother, and therefore you make that the default position. Can everybody hear, or is there... Uh, you make that the default position, and you therefore um, build an architectonic of choices somehow in a way that you know from your research, the behavioral research, that people will choose what they would have chosen if they were thinking properly, and so on. The, pr- the problem with that argument... I mean, prima facie, it's an extremely attractive uh, idea to be told... Um, I'm going to help you achieve your goals. You set the goals. I am going to give you uh, the way to do it. The problem with that is confusion between ends uh, and means can be very easily... The, the, the help with the means can collapse into um, uh, man- manipulation of ends and so on. And um, given that... I, I hate being predictable, like everybody in this room, no doubt. But given that tomorrow I'm um, discussing ex- extensively John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, you may not be surprised... And I have a peg for this, not my own preferences, but the fact that the main target of um, Sarah Conlin, I may mispronounce her name, and uh, Cass Sunstein is John Stuart Mills on Liberty, 
and the idea that is very popular in the American world that the only reason, um, the only justification for society, I stress, because Mill stresses society, public opinion, or the law, the state, to interfere with the behavior of somebody is to prevent harm from, uh, to others. Um, harm to themselves should not be a reason um, to interfere. And these people say Mill is completely wrong because he's very optimistic when he says people should be left alone to make their choices because they know best. Whenever society or the state interferes, they interfere in the wrong way and so on. What I think is the problem with this argument is, A, they, 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 uh, they uh, misrepresent Mill's argument there, and I will not expand on this, uh, uh, don't worry, and B, it's a strawman argument to the extent that that's not Mill's main argument in favor of the principle he proposes, which is not at all simple, as he says in the beginning of the, of the book. It's very complicated, as he shows when he elaborates on it. But still, he has a principle, uh, although not as simple as he would, he would like to tell us. The main argument is that by being allowed to make choices and mistakes and take the responsibility for them, and pay the price, we, become, we build our character, and we become our own person. And he insists in, on liberty and the rest of his work that that's an extremely important thing and an extremely important part of a person's uh, well-being and happiness and, and the rest. And happiness is built through having the right kind of character that will be able to face the adversities of life that are bound to come. So that is the main argument, not the argument we know best what is good for us, we very often don't know what is good for us, at least on the level of information and, uh, and, and means. I, I would agree with these, um, these authors. But there is the principle that Mill tried to uh, insist on is we have to establish a rule that the presumption should be in favor of uh, autonomy and individual liberty whenever you don't harm other people and don't prevent them from pursuing their own goals in their own way because the chances that the public or the state, society or the state, will get it wrong are enormous. And that applies to the means as well as to the ends. And most importantly, the character building repercussions, the character building function of making choices and making your own mistakes and paying the, paying the price for your mistakes is, is too high to abandon. I uh, stop here and I'm sure we'll have the chance to continue in the, in the discussion. Okay, thank you very much indeed. That's great. It's very, very useful addition there in terms of the emphasis of Mill, I think, in the discussion. Now, I'm going to go straight out because we haven't got long. And I'm then going to come back um, uh, in, initially to um, uh, Tim and Katerina first, just, just because they haven't spoken for quite a while and they can, we can start mixing it up a bit. But I'm just going to take two or three hands at the moment. So there's quite a few people who are saying that autonomy is a capacity we need to exercise to develop. I was just wondering, I'm a primary school teacher... I was wondering, with regards to children, what kind of age should we encourage this kind of process of making mistakes? Should, should that be from the very beginning, or is it something where the adults who've kind of developed this should have more authority? So kind of, how do you strike that balance? I was just wondering if you could unpick something for me, because I think you're arguing on different levels. So on the one hand, Tim talks about autonomy as a cultural achievement... But then the examples we hear are all about personal failings and how the individual makes mistakes, which we all know is true. And Mike contrasts the state uh, wanting to bend individuals to its will 
But what about the state wanting to bend other collectives to its will? Is there, is there not a difference in this discussion between you know, autonomy as, a, as an individual thing as opposed to autonomy as a collective thing? I mean, on your own, you have no autonomy because you're at, mer- you know, you're at the mercy of nature. But surely autonomy itself comes from already some form of collective. And what we should be debating and discussing is collectives against collectives rather than contrasting the collective to the individual's failings. I just wanted to say that, for me, the autonomy question is not just around sort of whether or not you allow people to do harm to themselves, but it's also do you allow people to make their lives easier? Um, talking about the sort of the opt-in on pension, so I moved to Switzerland for a year, I had to go and register with everywhere... I didn't grow from that experience. I could have quite happily avoided all of that um, and felt that I would have still been quite happy as a person and and lived happier life. So when it comes to things like pensions, I'm glad that I'm auto-enrolled. It helps me to sort of not worry about that thing in the future and that kind of allows me to sort of think about other things and do other things with my life than spending days running around offices. Um, On just the wording around, I guess, nudge uh, as well, um, is nudge just another kind of modern, slightly less offensive way of saying propaganda? Tim, anything you want to pick up, either from the audience or from the earlier remarks of your uh, fellow panellists? One thing that did come across quite clearly, I think, uh, from, I think it was Dan, talking about the violin or learning the violin. And I think what that illustrates is that um, autonomy or acting autonomously uh, is not an easy, it's not an easy task. It's, it's not something you just simply do. You don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm today going to be autonomous. I think the violent example il- illustrates the, the difficult nature of acting freely because it, what it involves is freely committing to a course of action uh, and therefore having to uh, resolve yourself to realising that end, having to put yourself through um, through, I don't know, uh, violin lessons, having to practice, having to um, always keeping in, in mind that end that you've, freely chosen, that you've freely chosen, always keeping that end in mind, but you're still having to almost uh, subject yourself to your own self-chosen end. You're having to discipline yourself. You're almost having to subject yourself to your own tyranny in, in the case of the violin. Uh, the interpersonal uh, point which Katerina raised... Um, I, I don't think, yeah, and this probably touches upon on, on, on the question about autonomy in the collective. Um, I don't think that in, in arguing for autonomy, you're therefore just arguing for this kind of uh, entirely self-generating individual who operates entirely outside of society with no bonds or connections with any of his or her fellows. You know, quite, quite the contrary. I think the, being an autonomous being an autonomous individual, being an autonomous being, means that you can also recognise in others their own autonomy. But also you can therefore ask others, as Katerina said, uh, for help, certainly when, certainly when you need it. I think, I think the key point is to determine who it is you're asking uh, for help. Uh, there's a difference between asking uh, a family member, asking a member of of your local, I don't know, a community organisation. Um, there's a difference between asking... Uh, a fellow, a fellow autonomous individual, and asking, say, a expert, or giving, uh, yeah, asking an expert, or um, asking, to put it more bluntly, uh, having to ask for help from the state. I think there's a, there's a key distinction there to be made between, uh, yeah, to be made as to who you're asking for help. So, Katerina, anything you want to pick up? Yes, I do. I want to pick up on the collective uh, individual autonomy and then return to the point about... Um, uh, <laughs> running around in offices. 
first of all, I did mention, however briefly, that we have to be aware what we mean by autonomy by adding context. We mean moral autonomy. Moral autonomy is a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Uh, political autonomy is a, a, a requires different, has different demands. Individual autonomy, different demands. So, uh, for example, if you, if, if you press me on moral autonomy, moral autonomy is through and through intersubjective. It is, it, it, it takes the autos, which means self, and normos, which is law. And you try to find out under which law you put yourself, which recognizes others as also rational individuals who can also put themselves under that law. This is an extremely demanding conception of moral autonomy. And uh, all this context, at least, is a first step towards uh, clarifying and trying to get out of the room this fantasy of autonomy that is made out of a falsehood, a notion of liberty that is causa sui, that is I'm causing myself as I go along out of nothing, which is false, and an ideal, the ideal of a civil servant uh, kind of autonomy, someone who is super rational, super in control of their actions, super well informed, etc. But very rarely we are that. Uh, and so people saying, oh, we are not like that, therefore let's all go and uh, do whatever the books tells us. I mean, th- together, this falsehood of liberty and this very demanding ideal of autonomy creates the fantasy of autonomy uh, that is more or less the individual autonomy. Very briefly on uh, what he said, true, our lives, that's what, what Mill got wrong, I think. Uh, often, other people think taking control of our lives just makes us happier. But this is the rub. Uh, there are two values at stake. And we should not forget that one is the value of treating people as persons rather than as things, and the other is the value of happiness. And the two, unfortunately, do not always go hand in hand. And sometimes you have to plumb for the one that you think is worth fighting for. The one concept that, that was interesting about uh, the running around, you know, I'd rather not be running around getting it done, that sounds very appealing. But I think the concept behind it um, is quite tricky because on the one hand uh, the point that was made about playing the violin is, is that we, it, it's easy to sort of be, to imagine or well, can't like everything just be easier all the time whereas there are actually some things like being a free citizen that actually are hard work and there's bugger all you can do about it being hard work and that you can say well I mean you, you, you can uh, politically decide that you'd rather opt um, for, a, for a life that's less complicated than freedom because it's also undoubtedly the case that in non-free societies you know there's less to choose from right and you know you don't have all these dilemmas of freedom Um, and in fact you can be very comfortable I mean you can live in an authoritarian state you can be well fed and looked after and so on you know it's kind of like reared by someone else but what you're not is free Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask the audience was and maybe Mike can reflect on it when I take a few more from the audience then I'll come back is who decides what's the good life? I think that's always the thing that gets me. Who is it that makes the decision that we're not rationally doing the things that we should be doing that would equal a good end? Because it, even to say, well, the good end is, is that you have a healthy life, that's a moral decision about what our good life is. Maybe a good life is not a healthy life. You know, you can live a healthy life and it not be good. Hello. Yeah, I'd like um, I'd really like the panel to pick up on the point that was made down here by uh, my um, colleague on the front line of teaching. Um, we're very interested in our school in the moment about this issue of autonomy and about the development of this sort of if autonomy is kind of like 
a muscle you've got to actually exercise. At what point can you do that as a child? I mean, in schools in Britain at the moment, it's perfectly possible for a 14-year-old to choose to opt out of doing triple science and not but be banned from buying a Mars bar at break time. And I'm kind of interested in what the panel think about in terms of what, you know, as the lady down here said, what kind of choices should be available to, to younger people. I know Mill's very clear on this, but I think actually it's probably slightly more complicated than Mill was suggesting about simple adult versus child. How, you know, how should we be developing those, those traits in the young through education? To my mind, nudge is completely anti-democratic and actually a, a, a big despotism because it actually crushes and denies individual uh, autonomy and the rationality of the individual because it identifies a proper problem, which is that some people sometimes do things irrationally, which I wouldn't classify as a problem at all times. For example, that people smoke irrationally. Now, instead of having a democratic ambition of convincing them to, smoke, to not smoke rationally, they want to convince us and nudge us from um, smoking irrationally to not smoking irrationally. And I think that is a complete uh, cop-out on the democratic scale. It's a question for Daniel. You said that in the face of an A-B decision, like neurophysiologists can tell what decision you're going to make before you make it, which suggests that we aren't the conscious source of our own thoughts and actions. But then you said that we can choose what environment we want to immerse ourselves in. But if we're not the conscious source of our own thoughts and actions, how would that ever be a free choice? Okay, thank you. Just in the context of nudge theory... Um, I think we're struggling to properly conceptualise what the state is, how it forms agency and why it makes decisions. Um, so, for example, um, uh, Dr Black, you talk about therapeutic um, paternalism, um, maybe just because coercive paternalism is too expensive and too difficult to justify politically, and so maintaining it is difficult, so we step back into a more, more therapeutic form of it. Um, and to answer your question directly, Claire, about... Um, who makes the choice? I think we need to recognise that we, as citizens within a welfare state, have a consequential responsibility to everyone around us. The reason the government says it's bad for you to smoke is because your smoking is hindering someone else getting a kidney transplant because it's going to cost the NHS. If you have private healthcare, my apologies for the personal attack, but nevertheless, the state is saying this is bad because it is bad for the overall good. It is bad for your neighbour because your lifestyle choices, which are avoidable, are directly impacting the um, life or death chances of someone else's whose chances are not avoidable. And we have to recognise that and understand that and understand that is why the state is ultimately trying to incentivise certain choices and not others. Thank you. I haven't got private health care, but I don't go mountain climbing, play rugby or various other risky things either, but I'm not going to resent those who do. It's interesting we haven't spoken about religion in terms of the, um, uh, the, the effect on autonomy. Um, and even in the context of sort of um, notions such as uh, sola scriptura, where you can bring to bear your own thoughts and, and meanings on, on religion, the simple fact is that religions do, and are the most powerful ve vehicles for corralling people against the, the author authoritarian will. Um, so I'm just wondering what, what the panel thinks about the fact that we're talking about um, uh, authority in a context where 80% of the world uh, subscribe to a religion or see themselves as part of a religion. And those religions are actually um, uh, um, saying things like, if you, if you don't believe such and such, then you're not a member of, of, of this religion. And the fact that also 
their considerations are not of this world. They're not necessarily trying to create a perfect world here, but, but gain access to a world beyond this. Okay. I, I just wanted to take up this, um, uh, the issue of the, the stories we tell about ourselves are not the truth. Yeah, precisely. Precisely the fact that we can lie and fabricate shows that we are autonomous and free, that our thinking isn't just determined by what's properly happening uh, uh, in our brains. We don't just make tr choices, we create. We create stories, truths, conceits, as well as uh, uh, choices. We're subjects of nature, but we're beyond uh, uh, nature's, you know, nature and physical laws. Our fabrications precisely show that. And when we're talking about stories about ourselves, science tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about our biology and our position uh, in, in, in terms of uh, physical and biological laws. But that in terms of the stories we tell, we have to look elsewhere. We have to look to the humanities. And, and, and in terms of stories, uh, let's look to, to, to tragedies and things. And five fruit and five you know, vegetables and fruit a, a, a day doesn't really tell us very much about our humanity. And it's not really the subject of Shakespeare's tragedies. Something that's happened in this round of questioning, I think, is that we've stopped talking about autonomy. We've started talking about agency, which I think is right. Because if you take autonomy, literally, it's self-rule, which, of course, is an ideal I don't think any of us would really... I think is possible in a society that we have where we depend on other people for things. But agency is something we can aspire to, to be the agent of our decisions, you know, to be the author of our decisions. I think that is a noble aim, and that's something that we can actually aspire to. And I think it's an important distinction to make for the purposes of this panel. OK, that's... Uh, Dan, why don't you... Good, lots to talk about here. It's nice. Um, uh, so I'll come back to the primary school, you know, clearly the person doing the most good in the world uh, right now, those who are educating our children, and much respect to, to, to you for that. Um, I'll come back to that. I do think that this kind of issue of what happens in government and state and control stuff is interesting. So let me just quickly... You know the old joke about the civil servant who says that works fine in practice, but how about in theory? Right? So I do, I do think that we have to be a little bit careful uh, to look at this choice. A good friend, pair of friends of mine, actually, friends of mine who are uh, epidemiologists looking at um, HIV, AIDS, uh, IV drug use, and sex workers. Uh, I've got a pretty clear understanding of how uh, transmission of HIV, AIDS interacts with drug use and sex workers. Um, but, for example, in America, land of the free, there's very little implementation of any of that knowledge. Guess which two countries in the world have most comprehensively adopted the evidence-based findings from these two researchers? China and Iran, right? So they went to Iran, they spoke to the mullahs, they said, here's the evidence on HIV, drug use, sex workers and thing. They said, okay, that sounds good, let's do that. And uh, the uh, rates of HIV AIDS amongst the sex workers of, of Tehran have dramatically dropped. So I do think, you know, that there is a real question about health and autonomy and, uh, and control. I mean, I'm not going to get trapped into the question. I mean, it's a nice one, right? So the um, uh, recursiveness of one's inability to choose. What I'm saying is that, and it's not the case in, that in all cases as a neuroscientist, uh, I did say is that you, I can tell what you're going to choose. I can set up paradigms, like when you have to press a button, where you think you know when you've made the decision and I know you're wrong. That's not the case for general choice. So all I'm saying is that the sense that you're acting autonomously can be misleading, all right? And therefore, trying to reinforce that sense of autonomy as if that makes you more autonomous, gives you more freedom, gives you more choice is probably a mistake. So relying on your intuitions about when you're in control, trying to get a bit more of that is probably not what we're doing. That doesn't mean we can't learn from biology. And Danny Kahneman's stuff, the, you know, the, the fast and slow, which I completely agree is the best stuff out there, is in the end a biologically based account of the way that the different brain systems work 
convergence between his kind of cognitive neuroscience and the brain imaging stuff is, is slow, but, but sure, we'll get better at understanding how biology helps us to understand where our choices come from. The interesting thing to note, and I want to pick up, that we use the word conceit, conceited and sophisticated. One of the lovely things about Danny Kahneman as an individual and as a theory is that he's just as vulnerable to his stuff as anyone else. Right? So if you face him with one of the choices that he sets up in his experimental paradigm, he will choose wrong in the rational sense as often as anyone else. So being a Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics, well, Nobel Prize winner in economics because there's no Nobel Prize in psychology, right? He had to rebrand himself as economics to get the Nobel Prize. It took him about five years. But even a Nobel Prize winner in that is not invulnerable to it, right? So what do the primary school teachers need to do? It's not about whether the children should be acting with autonomy or not. They need to be successful, children up, at navigating between those two modes. They need to notice when they're acting fast or acting slow, and they need to gain judgment and experience about when to do which. There are times when you should just go with your gut and do it, act free, run around and shout, but you need to reflect sometimes on when you should slow down, think what you're doing, come back to what you did and reflect on it. And that's the skill we need. Very last one, tiny primary school, at least on the way to primary school, you know, choosing to drive an SUV may be a statement of autonomy. But actually what you're saying is I want to transfer all the risk of a mistake of mine onto everybody else, not me. So, so driving an SUV in a city is a fundamentally uncivilized thing to do because although it seems to be saying it's autonomy, you're actually taking away the autonomy of others and shifting onto them. So these balances in collective and personal and that I think are super interesting. Okay, that's Mike. Yeah, I... I want to pick up on a couple of what people said about nudge and nudge theory. Several things to say. One, it's not a new idea at all. Um, Thaler and Sunstein simply rebranded um, what's actually very old uh, psychological responses to immediate cues in the environment. It's not a synonym for propaganda. It's about using the automatic system that we all have and appealing to that rather than to rational judgment. So you set up and make so-called choices easier. In practical terms, um, there's no evidence at all that it is an effective method for changing health-related behaviour. None at all. You can get people to buy bars of chocolate in a supermarket. You can get people to buy bottles of wine because you put them on the end of the gondola ends using nudge theory. But the evidence base suggesting that it's it's an effective way of altering health behaviour is zero, more or less. Second thing to say about nudge um, is, or second thing to say, once you stay with this idea of the automatic and reflective system, some of these debates, I won't say go away exactly, but it's about the way we think as much as the way it's about um, idealised concepts. And in that regard, the chap early on who asked about levels, for me, I think the way to conceive of these levels is to make a distinction between, yes, human agency, but the product of human agency, uh, the billions and billions and millions of things that each and every one of us do as human agents, produces social structures. Those social structures, in turn, constrain our agency, and it's the interaction between those levels rather than individual levels themselves. It's the interaction between the levels that produces the nature of the social reality which we inhabit. I also like very much the point about stories because, in fact, uh, there's quite a lot of really very compelling 
uh, social psychology and sociology, which looks at the individuated self not as something driven from some internal mechanism in the human body uh, or the human mind, but rather the self is a product of the narratives we use to think about the external world and to think about ourselves. And in that regard, tragedy, comedy, elegy, and all of the classic narrative traditions, at least in the Western world, constitute the way that we construct our own sense of self. Um, I'd, I'd love to address all the questions, but there's no time, alas. So I want to um, highlight a couple of things. Coming back to nudge and propaganda and also to the question earlier, I would like them to do it for me so um, I have time. Um, the standard argument is, of course, they are very happy to take on more and more and more and more, and then it becomes a soft despotism and you even forget that you ever had any desire to make any choices. That's the danger, and that's what... Um, uh, makes people concerned about that. On the other hand, let us not, um, I mean, I personally would not uh, dismiss science and, 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 and science-based um, decisions or what I would like the state to do is collect data. I can't do it. Individuals can't do it, as you say. Uh, little community can't do it. They should collect data, make them public, remind us of things, but there is a limit to uh, how often and in what way, and as Michael has just said, it's not effective anyway. When you feel uh, patronized, you do the opposite. That's what I do, and that's what I think most people will do. But in terms of um, um, informing us, that's, the state should inform us, yes, and, and, and all sorts of other public bodies and organizations. Religion is a big question. I would strongly recommend to those people to read on liberty because it has very interesting mills on liberty because it has very interesting arguments about, about that. You can build a morality that is much more uh, uh, altruistic and much less selfish than the morality of various religions, for example, and be nicer to people not because of the reward of paradise but for other much more fulfilling reasons in this life uh, and which are not selfish. Um, stories. Yeah. The final is the most important in a way, but I may come back to it later. I want to come back to stories as well. Uh, what Michael said reminds me of the book of that Israeli historian, medieval historian, uh, Sapiens, who's, who insists that what distinguishes humans from other species is the stories we tell each other. But I wanted to reconcile the humanities with, uh, the, other, with the sciences um, through what you said, uh, because what Michael said, um, I quoted Michael... Is it better if I do that in the final round? It's, it's more general. Yeah, I so think, I'll I leave it for so the final round. Few few last questions. It seems to me that like Hannah Arendt points to the main problem with all this. She talks about in the human condition, the emergence of the social as opposed to the public and private, which you had in kind of like the emergence of the Greek state. You were unfree when you were at home, but you were free when you were in the public and therefore autonomous. But the emergence of the social and the emergence of the state and the way it tries to... Um, create this like new role and new space in which people live leads to this kind of like philosophical kind of uh, quagmire in which we don't know whether we're free when we're out in the world because we're not exactly citizens when we're part of this social sphere but we're, are we still in the social sphere when we're back in the private world at home and therefore not autonomous. Um, I just want to take up with the, this point about somehow teaching autonomy. This seems to me completely oxymoronic. 
and your uh, slightly patronising tone, uh, Dr Glazer, um, by saying that uh, we should praise our primary school teachers for thinking about this. Well, I don't think we should. I think we should be praising them if they're passing on the cultural knowledge of our species uh, and letting children discover what autonomy and freedom is for themselves. Uh, the one thing that we can't do, I think, is teach them. We can stop them, perhaps, from uh, uh, bleeding to death uh, if they fall over in the playground, but the most important thing is that they have to learn uh, what freedom is and what autonomy is uh, for themselves by being given the space to do that and simply by uh, being given the information they need about the species to carry that on. And what's even worse, I think, is that we're now treating uh, adults as if they're primary school children, uh, uh, as if we can teach them to be free. Uh, and again, uh, I think this is a, a huge problem for us as a society. Professor Varasakis, I think you'd agree that, um, uh, in Mill's view, nudge would be a, a substitution of bureaucratic efficiency uh, in uh, against um, people arriving at the truth through experiments in thought and experiments in, in living and arriving at, at, at those decisions uh, collectively. And on that basis, that, um, uh, that substitution of uh, bureaucratic efficiency for thought uh, would have um, uh, consequences that would be uh, you know, contrary to uh, utility uh, in the long run. Just a correction. Propaganda doesn't mean lies, okay? Propaganda means persuasion, not lies. It was taken over by, Ger what's his name, Gerbils. Um, another thing is I can't believe um, most of us don't have time to make decisions. We need knowledge, okay? And we don't always have the knowledge um, at our disposal. But I can't believe some of the stories that are coming up here undermining reason, Okay, I mean, I'm not, I've actually changed my view on nudge theory now because I do think that some of the um, policies that come out are quite beneficial. Um, but I've actually changed my mind um, coming along to this. Whose autonomy is it anyway? Um, interesting presentations. Autonomy in different contexts works in, di works in different ways in different contexts. One of the big questions, though, is that um, at the moment the fear about autonomy is result resulting in a kind of sense of paternalism. Autonomy is far more problematic than a bunch of pub public health policies and difficulties around that. As free-thinking human beings, autonomy needs to be reclaimed. My question is to the panel, how do we do that? Even Mozart didn't choose to learn the violin. Someone encouraged him or nudged him or determined the inputs that made him choose it. So right. should we, should that, is that what teachers should be doing? Right, okay. I just wanted to posit a thought, which is more and more people, it seems to me now, um, are choosing to want help, if that makes any sense. So they actually say, I want you to help me raise my children. This goes against, obviously, what I would like the world to be like, but I'm just telling you. Um, they say, I want you to help me have a healthy diet, Mr. Expert. And that's what I was saying about the self-help guides. I posit that possibly it's because, to go back to what Tim said about it being an accomplishment, and various people have talked about exercising autonomy, is, is that we actually are losing a sense of what an autonomy is individual is and we're not treating it as an accomplishment and we're not practicing much so we're actually losing that to the point where we actually feel quite helpless and ask so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well as it's chipped away and we don't know how to be autonomous we actually then say god i don't know how to live so i better ask someone which is the concern that I have in the present circumstance. So I think asserting that I want everyone to be autonomous, to use their agency and so on, I mean, I actually do believe you can be autonomous and self-governing. I've said that's impossible. 
I don't think it's impossible, but I think it takes a, it's a lot hard. That's all. Um, okay, in the reverse order then. Well, again, uh, exactly that was the worry of liberals in the 19th century who were warning people unless uh, the principle we're trying to assert is, um, is, is accepted and inculcated, people will lose their desire to make choices. People will lose their desire to be free. People will lose the desire and the memory of what it was like to make choices. That's what, that's what they were warning about, and that speaks to what you said. Um, uh, the gentleman up there who addressed me, yes, exactly, you hit it on the nail. Uh, in, in the short term, they would do a good job in the long term by uh, taking on all these things and doing them better for us. They are making of us sheep, and that is a very bad thing in terms of the greatest happiness of mankind uh, as, a, as a developing species and so on. Therefore, that's why it's a bad idea, and I, I like the parallel very much. Now, what I would like to do uh, very briefly is uh, defend Dr. 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 Glazer, who has been uh, um, um, <laughs> accused of things. No, I, I'm joking. That was a healthy debate. But I, want, I would like to, uh, if, if possible, make him speak a bit more, because I may have misunderstood him. But if I have misunderstood him, again, I don't want to be John Stuart Mill's representative on Earth, but it so happens that on this issue he has a lot to say. So um, I was very excited when Daniel said, what we can do is choose to put ourselves in an environment in which what uh, we would like to, to achieve might be achieved or we may have choices. The diet on which you feed he stressed, is very important. Make sure that the voices that you hear are not those you agree with already. You choose by changing the diet on which you feed. The latter is, of course, um, why um, on Liberty Chapter 2 on free speech and free thought and the extreme importance of having your opinions challenged is so important, even if your opinions are, are correct. And that's why the Institute of Ideas... Um, is so praiseworthy for raising debate. But I wanted to uh, address the other issue of free will and uh, determinism, uh, because if I understood him correctly, he was saying something that reminded me of John Stuart Mill when he wrote somewhere else, if you cannot change the way you react to circumstances, for all these reasons that behavioral, be behavioral uh, sciences and uh, neuroscience and science in general has shown us that there are all sorts of things where we automatically react in ways we don't recognize or accept or predict or we think we might react differently. Well, if, if you have experience and you have noticed that you react in a certain way to certain circumstances, Mill's recommendation in the logic um, is if you cannot change the way you react to circumstances, try as much as you can to change the circumstances. Thank you. Okay, I think something that we haven't explicitly articulated yet is that all of this takes place in the context of values. And many of the things that people have been asserting, arguing, are actually value positions. And it just occurs to me that when we talk about um, the autonomous individual, the autonomous individual you clear, were, were articulating, I think, as self-directed, um, it's a very heavily loaded value language, which assumes a couple of things. One, that it's linked with maturity, adulthood, um, intelligence. It's actually sometimes a shorthand for what is a middle class, a highly middle class and elite way of thinking about the world. And actually, the obverse, sometimes it is good to be looked after by others. If you think about us through the life course, there are long periods of our lives when we are in, it is impossible for us to exert autonomy on behalf of ourselves as young children, as we age. Uh, sometimes when we're very ill, it is simply not possible to exert the kind of autonomy that's held up as a value position. 
So value positions and values in this are ultra important. But don't forget the thing I said at the beginning too. Individuals are often cussedly individual and difficult. And that's a, a social reality that some of this discourse chooses to ignore. Um, and anyone who's been a lecturer, uh, uh, sorry, a, a primary school teacher, or anyone who tried to manage an academic department, which I did for a number of years, or for that matter tried to tell ministers what was a good idea, will realise that the ability to get past that cussedness um, is a conceit. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. Um, so... Uh Sorry, where am I now? Oh, Dan. Dan. Yeah, it's me. Yeah. OK. Uh, so, well, thank you. It's always intimidating when people are actually listening to what you're saying and write it down, and it's even more so when they've got a copy of, of Mill open in front of them for you to uh, be related to. But, uh, but thank you for that. Um, uh, two, two little things to say, I suppose. Um, you know, one is uh, I do think that, the, uh, uh, that my, one of my favourite jokes, Claire, is the sadist says the masochist uh, uh, hit me. And the masochist says the sadist hit me, and the sadist says... No. And I do imagine you when you say this, you, you, you've got your public out there and you're saying, act autonomously. And they say, no. <laughs> Which, uh, so I, uh, that for me was, was uh, kind of the, post, the postscript I'd like uh, to leave. The, the stories are really interesting, my friends. And actually I had the privilege, kind of, although not in the middle, of being the first scientist to be a judge on the Man Booker Prize last year. Weird that there hadn't been one until then, but we chipped away at the cultural barrier and got there in the end. And it did, one of the extraordinary things was damn near killing me of reading 156 novels in six months, or a novel a day, is that the slice of life you get from that uh, and, and the number of interior voices and the sense of what subjectivity is, what agency is, and what individual choice is like uh, does, I think, uh, arise from the novel much more readily than even nice guidelines uh, uh, or, or, or government policy. And I think it is a very instructive place to go. A plug for a book of friends of mine, uh, Ella Berto and, and Susan Eldick, in the novel Cure. If you find a trouble in your life, maybe uh, look up that book and it will recommend a novel that will help you to get around it. And clearly, to read a novel, you have to engage with not just your fast thinking, but also your slow thinking. And it's that navigation between the two modes that I think we need to be building up in ourselves. OK, great. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, anything that recommends we read novels? <laughs> right, so, um, uh, yes, and Katharina? Okay, I want to say that I totally disagree with what you said. Yes, you can't teach autonomy. Autonomy is not something that is natural, that you find. Autonomy is a value, as I said, and it's not a value of being as a, a, a senior civil servant who is just perfectly uh, in charge, informed, etc. This is an ideal. The, the value of autonomy is treating another as a person rather than as a thing. To treat someone as a thing is you try to manipulate them in a position that you find agreeable to yourself. You try to get around them if they are too riotous, etc. So this is, uh, this is a very important value that may hook up onto natural tendencies we have, uh, such as natural freedoms or whatever, but it is a complicated thing, and children don't have it naturally. Children uh, and adults, in fact, are natural egoists. Uh, we want the, way, the world to be our way. We want to have a magic wand to do things easy for ourselves. Uh, whereas autonomy is to treat yourself and others as persons means that you have to recognize that the world is populated and it's populated by other people who may have different views to you. They may, may see the world differently. They may have different conceptions of the good. And, and that is the hardest lesson. And that is a very, very tough lesson. Uh, and I don't know, good luck to teachers who try to teach it and to encourage people, to, uh, younger people, to make informed choices. And uh, as you said, I think it's something negotiating between the slow and the reflective, or in my language, negotiating between involvement and control. And involvement and control come in more or less. You can be very little involved in your choices when you act automatically, 
Uh, and that could be a good thing. You may have struggled really hard to create these automatic behaviors in, in yourself. Anybody who is uh, exercising any skills, such as singing or horse riding or something, you want certain things to be automatic to you. You don't have to be thinking all the time. So automatic behavior not, is not ipso facto autonomy denying. That's what I said. There is not a box of things there that are against autonomy and this box that is for autonomy. That's why, uh, re returning back to the value of treating yourself and others as persons rather than, uh, rather than as things, is, seems to me crucial. Okay, thank you very much. And then Tim. Uh, yeah, uh, a couple of times, actually, uh, Mike has talked about the cussedness of people, uh, the, their refusal to do uh, what uh, the experts or policymakers or even a nice, charming people like Mike, their failure to do what those people tell them to do. He talks about that as if it's a problem, as if you know, the cussedness of the, of, of the populace is a problem. Um, and as far as, far as I can say, I, I, don't think it is a, I don't think it's a problem at all. In fact, it suggests there is still the stirrings of something like autonomy there. Um, in, terms of, in terms of my point about autonomy being a social accomplishment, um, we live amidst its forms uh, today. All around us are vestiges of previous struggles for autonomy, for liberty, uh, various civil rights, including the right to, right to vote. And they're all, they are underpinned by the principle of, um, of autonomy, by, people's, by the assumption that people are capable of making decisions about their own lives, making decisions about who ought to govern uh, their own lives. And the assault upon autonomy, if you like, is undermining the very principles upon which a liberal polity is based so what we have right now, if you like, is a situation in which, I guess, a liberal democratic society is almost hollowing itself out from within. And uh, on that happy note, <laughs> I'll leave you. Thank you very much indeed. Can we thank a fantastic panel? 